in a world where you can trust there will be more big, real Bigfoots in a Bigfoot documentary than there will be infrastructure in our nation's infrastructure bills. <laughs> a time when the town loony makes more sense screeching in the middle of Main Street than your elected representatives. Let's get back to the basics of weird. I am Stan, and the goddess of ghouls next to me is my co-host. Ashley, welcome to Strange Shenanigans. Tonight's episode, we're going to talk about the Dorothea Dix Psychiatric Hospital and... Banshees from Irish Folklore. But I didn't go with Irish Folklore tales. I went with real tales of seeing the Banshee. Haunting women. As if we're not scary enough. Right. (laughs) Okay, the first topic is Dorothea Dix Psychiatric Hospital. I'm going to give you some some history of the place and person that it's named after before I dive into the real story that happened to me myself. Yeek. So, Dorothea Dix is named after Dorothea Dix. She was born in Hamden, Maine in 1802. There's not much known about her childhood, but it's believed that her parents were alcoholics and her father may have been abusive. And due to this, she was moved to Boston with her grandmother at a young age. Uh... Dix attended school in Boston and tutored children. She became extremely ill, though, living in Boston, and it was suggested that she spend some time in Europe uh, where she could experience a different environment. Um, While she was overseas, she uh, began meeting with groups of reformers uh, who were interested in change in, in the way that we cared for the mentally ill. Once uh, Dix returned to the United States, she set out to tour mental hospitals across the country, and she often reported her findings to politicians. Dix pushed states to care for the unfortunate. Although many politicians disagreed with her work, she moved forward and eventually established asylums in New Jersey, North Carolina, Illinois, and she worked to pass federal legislation, which created a national asylum. That bill did not pass, but through her tours, she ended up improving the living conditions of the mentally ill greatly in the United States. Okay. Right. The hospital itself that's named after was named after her because she did a tour of it and reformed it from its disgusting, horrifying origins to what it eventually became. Okay. I was going to say, cause she sounds great so far. She is. <laughs> uh, uh, it, Maine's first psychiatric hospital was the Maine insane hospital established in 1835 that's filled that facility was repeatedly enlarged until 1889 when it was determined it was no longer feasible to expand it further the state appointed a committee to identify a location for a second facility and that's how we came up with dorothea dix hospital all right the uh the the it was built by george combs um he was a super uh, intricate architect who had built lots of hosp- early American hospitals and such and the the setup of it was so that it could always be expanded upon which it was and then later on in modern time a bunch of it is disused and blocked off so uh, I, I was fresh out of the army and I needed a job to pay the bills while I tried to figure out what I was going to do as a career and uh the first job that I came across was being a hospital security guard at Dorothea Dix. Ooh. Um, it, I, I didn't stay long in security, and uh, the place itself was, the people and everything was nice. The doctors, nurses, guards were pleasant, 
to work around. The building itself is like crazy beautiful. It's huge. And it's huge. Um, and with how modern medicine is, most of the patients were actually quite charming and nice to deal with in most days unless they were in some sort of crisis situation. Right. Which rarely actually happened for a state-run psychiatric hospital. Being the low man on the totem pole, I had to work the night shift. The majority of my duties were hourly patrols through the building and trying not to fall asleep. Um, there's three sections of it. There's there's a left set of wings, which is blocked off and has not been updated since uh, the early 1900s. There's the middle of the hospital that's used currently as the modern hospital. Then there's the left side that was rebuilt to house other things like different state agencies and federal agencies, but later closed and also blocked off. So essentially more than half the hospitals blocked off? Two-thirds of it, yeah. That's when, quite when a I was bit. There. It, was, it was pretty weird. But the, the demand for the state psychiatric was not high enough to actually open those wings up. It was one of the few places where they weren't like suffering from overcrowding and stuff. Okay. Like but uh, so my job would be to go around, make sure doors were locked in both, you know, the modern part of the building where the hospital was and the two parts that were no longer in use, which were like essentially tombs to like the psychiatric hospital of the past. There's one of like ancient 1900s and then there was the one that was updated and it must have been the 60s or the 70s and then shut back down not much later after that. Weird. Probably don't have to say that wandering through a derelict, dust-covered hospital in the dead of night with only a flashlight was always super uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, late uh, in the winter night of, uh, I think it was 2011, I was at my guard station, which was a large office, and it had these big, huge antique windows that uh, were behind me. And it sat out from the main part of the hospital in a way that I could see straight down the disused right side of the hospital. Um, I was sitting there and I happened to turn around and it's just fidgeting and there was a light up on the third floor all the way down at the end of the hall that was turned on in the building. Well, I'd just been there like 30 minutes before and I knew at that point after I'd been doing it for a little while that there was no reason to turn lights on because when you went through one room and out another, there might not be a light switch on the other side. So I'd always use my flashlight. So I was like, oh, maybe someone left it on during the day. Who knows? Well, I had to go up there and check it out. Right. So get my flashlight and get my keys and I have to go through layer of layer of unlocking doors just to get to the third floor because everything is pretty much permanently closed off. I get up to the third floor, I get to the room and I can see the light shining under the door. So I unlock it. It's, it was locked, open it, lights on and the, the room was used. It just had a bunch of old desks and chairs stacked up in it. Why? So I get in there and I go straight to the back of the room because it's at the end of the building. There's a fire escape out the other side. And I was like, well, let's make sure nobody came in through that back door. Right. Well, the giant, you know, five pound chain and lock are still on the door. So no one came so through nobody there. came through. So I was like, OK, well, maybe maybe my boss left it on earlier or something like that, because the guy who had the ship before me was was the guy who was in charge of the guards. So I shut it off, locked the door. And started walking back down to my office. Well, as soon as I got back down to my office, I sat down, uh, was was going through some of my stuff, and then the light came back on from behind me. I saw it right over my shoulder. 
So I jumped like almost out of my freaking <laughs> seat. The the desk chair like shot away from me and slammed against the wall. That's how quick I jumped. He's <laughs> like, what the shit? Somebody's up there. So I'm like, okay, well, it's not a patient because nobody can get through. They had to have come from the outside. So oh, the usual protocol as a security guard dealing with patients is you have to be gentle and careful with people, right. no matter how extreme the situation is. Well, this whoever's in there is not a patient. So I, like, ditch my teeny tiny flashlight, go grab my boss's giant, like, foot and a half long mag light because <laughs> I want to be able to clobber someone's face in if they come at me. So I rushed all the way back up through all the layers, unlocking everything and locking it back behind me all the way up. And I see the lights on behind the door. So I got the flashlight up by my head, and I'm, like, ready to burst through the door and crack some skulls. <laughs> and the door is locked. I'm like, okay. So I unlock the door, swing it open. There's nobody in the freaking room. So I check under every desk and piece of furniture. I start moving shit around. The back door is still chained shut. And there's nothing in the hospital. There's nothing. So I go through the hallway and I'm going room to room. Boom. Opening the door as quick as possible. Throwing the lights on. Nobody is up there. There's no way anybody could have gotten up there. Because unless they had my keys, which was the only set of keys to get in there, they would have had to scale a three-story wall in the dead of winter. Even if they got through that, that that fire escape, they would have had to climb that covered in ice and snow in the dead of Maine winter. <laughs> it's just not possible. And then get in through, in through a door that was chained from the inside. Right, it doesn't make any sense. So I start closing everything up down in the hallway, lock everything back down. I get back down to the door on the end where the light keeps coming on. And I check everything once more. Shut the light off, shut the door, and lock it. And as soon as I turned, I heard click, and the friggin' light <laughs> came back on. At this point, I'm like, fuck this. I'm just sprinting back to my desk, slamming things shut and locking it behind me. It's like, whoever wants that light on in that room can have it on, because I'm not <laughs> dealing with this shit. I'm not paid enough to get friggin' haunted for the rest of my life by a former psychiatric patient. No. <laughs> so I rushed all the way back down there, and back to my room and the light stayed on up there all night that's no weird. shadows no movement in the window but they the just light wanted on. the light on somebody wanted the light on so i i like i didn't like right out the bat you know when the next guy got there be like oh my god the building's haunted <laughs> you know because i'm supposed to be a just out of the army tough ass veteran and i'm scared by a light that keeps coming on but the next day, when it rolled around and the shift came up, uh, my boss asked me, he's like, the light was on in that room, wasn't it? I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, it friggin' does that. I'm like, what do you mean it does that? He's, <laughs> like, does he's, that. he's like, I don't bother with it anymore. I turn it off, come back, and it's back on. Something turns the light on. And I'm like, what the hell? One of the on-call doctors, who was this nice, nice guy, uh, it, and he had to, when he's on call, he has to stay in the apartment that was... The floor, like there's one staircase that led up to it to, to right above where our guard station was, right in the old main part of the building. And he was standing there while we were talking about it. He's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, to be honest, after like my third night here, I've actually never fallen asleep in this building since. Oh, comforting. Because in the middle of the night, something was slamming the cupboards and stuff in the kitchen of the apartment upstairs. And he knew the only people who could get in there would be us, the guards, or someone would have to have gone past us to the door that was directly across from our office <laughs> and go up there. So he came out and all the cupboards were open and nobody was there. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, the, the, the main guard, the boss, my boss, he, uh, he had said one day he'd been outside walking around and he saw a girl up in one of the, the disused parts of the building. So he sprinted up there and there's nobody up there. And he said a couple days later, the same thing happened. Nobody friggin' up there. The third time he happened, he just like watched it because he knew by the time he'd get up there, nothing was no gonna be there. No one's gonna be there. You know? And, uh, like, it's easy to say that, you know, oh, oh, ghosts, evil spirits, and stuff like that don't exist. But in a place like that, where people were treated so poorly Horribly. for so long, that, that hospital went through stages of. You know, all stages of the American psychiatric program. There were, there's at one point uh, in recent history where they had just taken the bolts out of one of the disused wings where there used to be the hooks where they used to ch- chain the patient shackles yeah. to. You know, it's just, it, and you think all that human misery, there's got to be something left there. Definitely. There's definitely something left. Yeah. And I, I was always uncomfortable being there. I'd always been uncomfortable leading up to it because I always kind of felt like someone was staring at you all the time. No matter what room you were in. I was in the lightly, brightly lit guard room with all its modern technology and TV screens and computer screens and stuff. And it still felt like someone was always friggin' watching me. It was just an uncomfortable place to be. Ugh. Now you kind of want to do a, where are they now? How's everybody doing? Who used to work there still Right. If, 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 I, I, if I could track <laughs> down a couple of the, of the old guards, I'd like to get them in here to talk about it. So if you've worked for Dorothy Dix and anything weird happened to you, you need, a, you need to find us because I want to know if it's still happening. Right, yeah. And I want to know if they ever intend to use those wings again. What, like what happens in the meantime? Right. Like well, if they're in use... I kind of want to know what's well, I, going on. I, I, from what I remember, it was a, it was years ago at this point, but the, the right side of the building was, had been updated to a point. So oh, the, the plan always was if they had to expand or if they had to do anything, they were going to the right side. The left side has been is essentially left as like the original building, the left wing. And it was just blocked off because it, it was it wasn't you know, in disrepair, but it was to the point where it would take so much effort to money to, to turn it into a modern hospital that it just didn't make sense. Right. It was better to just leave it like that so that they could, you know, actually use it as an example of what a hospital used to look like and things like that. Jeez. You know, which without Dorothea Dix, who knows how much longer patients would have suffered through being shackled to floors and walls when they were having a quote unquote episode you know yeah i think if it wasn't for dorothy addicts it definitely would have stayed longer because it wasn't that much long ago where they were still electrocuting you to get your brain right yeah exactly so i think it would i think definitely she made a difference it was some of the stuff would be going on way longer than it should have and that that that's that's my story i I mean it actually happened to me so oh i know i'm a pessimist about like literally everything Everything. but this is where (laughs) the ghost thing like it's it's hard to be a pessimist when stuff like this has happened to you multiple times, you know? We'll be coming right back at you with the next topic. All right, and we're back with our next topic on the subject of crazy people and death. 
I have the story of the Banshee. So Banshees are in different folklore, but they're most popular in where else? Ireland. Right. Yeah, they're really big in Ireland where, you know, we still believe in fairies and leprechauns and hey, I've I've seen Eurovision. I'm pretty sure fairies are real if you feed them. <laughs> so a banshee is a fairy in Irish legend, and her scream is to believe an omen of death. Yay! The scream is a warning <laughs> that there will be imminent death in the family, and as Irish families blended over time, it's so that each family has its own banshee so irish people instead of having like guardian angels like we believe in they're like no each family has a lady who tells you when someone's gonna die <laughs> you each get your harboring or death <laughs> yeah. personalized for exactly. your family that's nice so she is a disembodied spirit and yes she's a she of course <laughs> always she can appear as a beautiful woman wearing a shawl a pale woman in a white dress with long red hair, because, you know, she's Irish. A woman with a long silver dress and silver hair. Or a headless woman carrying a bowl of blood that is naked from the waist up. Wow, that sounds like fun. <laughs> she also <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> an old woman with frightening red eyes, a green dress, and long white hair. So, let's hope you get a good one, I guess. <laughs> right? Let's hope you don't get the topless, headless one. It's a weird combo right there. Historians have traced the first stories of the Banshee all the way to the 8th century, which some were based on a tradition where women sang a sorrowful song to commence someone's death or predict someone's death. But these Banshees have a bad rep because guess what they accepted as payment for warning you that someone in your family was about to croak what alcohol oh well yeah that truly irish then, huh? <laughs> they accepted i can say that we're both part <laughs> irish mm -hmm. they accepted alcohol as payment and they were said to be sinners and punished by being doomed to become banshees according to the mythology of this poor banshee she is if she is spotted, she'll vanish into a cloud of mist, and this action creates a noise similar to that of a bird flapping its wings. Legend says that banshees don't cause death, they're just a warning of death. And not all banshees are hate-filled creatures carrying bowls of blood. <laughs> I know. They, there are some that have strong ties to their families in life and continue to watch over them in death. When they manifest themselves, banshees appear as beautiful, enchanting women that sing sorrowful, haunting songs, which is filled with concern and love for the families they're taking care of. These songs can be heard a few days before death of a family member, or the song can only be heard by the person for whom it is intended. On the other hand, we do have the carrying bowls of blood banshees, that are angry and scary because these banshees during their lives were women that had reasons to hate their families and appear as frightening apparitions filled with hatred. These type of banshees are celebrating the future demise of someone they loathed. Man. I like to think I have like a nice banshee, but I wouldn't be surprised if your family had like oh no full I mean, blood no <laughs> banshee. That, that sounds like my family's type of banshee, the the headless kind. 
So after reading a few stories about banshees, I picked a few and I kind of, I'm starting to think, because I think ghosts are real, of course, and unicorns and narwhals. Well, narwhals are real. Narwhals are real. But Look I, it up. <laughs> it's worth a Google. I like to think, I, I actually think banshees are real. Because we've all seen the, the ghost shows. We've all heard the ghost stories. Mm-hmm. One of the most common things we hear about ghosts is, is the singing. Yeah. Is the songs and the singing. And as reading some of these, it sounds like banshees really could be kind of a real thing. So I try to find some recent ones. And this one is a journal entry by a woman named Beatrice O'Brien from 1907. And she's writing the account of Orla Dunphy as told in her diary entry. It's beautiful Irish handwriting and all swoopy. People need to learn how to write better now. Right. One night, Orla Dunphy went to bed. And after a long sleep, she was awakened by a noise. Her bedroom window faced down to the town. When she woke up, she was dazed by sleep. She heard screams. At first, she thought it was the howling of dogs. But as the screams came nearer, it filled the whole vault of the heavens. Then, all of a sudden, it struck her that it was the banshee. The lady got out of bed and went to the maid's room. She woke the maid and told her she heard the banshee. The maid said, come on over to the window until we see what she is like. But Orla did not go over. The maid looked out the window and she said, that's her all right. What's she like? Orla asked. The description she gave her was, At first she looked like a huge tangled ball of wool, but as soon as she came nearer, she assumed a woman's form. After a time, she sat on the corner of the house and started singing and combing her hair. After a while, she just disappeared. That same night, the banshee was heard in the town to the east and then to the town of the west. And on that very night, a man named Patrick McCarthy died in the center of those villages. Ooh. Oh, at least she wasn't carrying a bowl of blood. Right. So she was a nice banshee taking care of her people. <laughs> uh, this one's from 1920 by a Mrs. Gregory. The banshee always cries for the Orions. Anthony O'Brien was a fine man when I married him, and handsome, and I could have had great marriages if I didn't choose him, and many wondered at me. When he took ill and lived in the bed, Johnny came in one day and says, Is Anthony living? And I said, for he was, yes. He says, as I was passing, I heard crying and crying from the hill where the forests are, and I thought it must be for Anthony, and he was gone. Then Ellen, the littlest girl, came running in and she says, I heard the mournfulest crying that you ever heard just behind the house. I said, it must be the banshee. Anthony heard me say that where he was lying in bed, he called out, if it's the banshee, it's for me and it must die today or tomorrow. In the middle of the next day, he died. That was just from 1920. Okay. And the last one's from 1945, and this one was actually written by a man. Right? Let's change it up a little bit. The Banshee Cries for the Boyles. I saw the Banshee when old Boyle's mother died. I was coming home in the dusk with a load of sods, and the old gray horse and my mother was with me. 
And she said to me, some poor woman has lost her man or maybe a son. And the thing wore a shroud as if it had come from a coffin and its hair was streaming in the wind. We both saw it, my mother and I. My mother, she said a prayer or maybe two. That's the banshee, she said. It cried for many an old family here. And some say it's one that has gone before. Be that as it may, no human heart could utter such grief. Speaking of Irishmen and uh, banshee stories, I have an, the story of an Irishman about a banshee brought to us by an Englishman, but from the continent of India. All right, let's do it. So, oh, uh, the, the book itself is Jungle Lore by Jim Corbett. And uh, he was a famous English uh, hunter who essentially protected provinces of India from uh, man-eating animals at the time. Aw, so cuddly. Yeah, but uh, so this was uh, early in his life uh, that he's writing about. And it goes on as a dance was an Irishman steeped to the crown of his head in every form of superstition in which he had utter and complete belief. And it was natural, therefore, for him to tell the ghost stories in a very convincing manner. The stories he was telling that night related to shrouded figures and rattling bones, the mysterious opening and closing of doors, and the creaking of boards on stairways in old ancestral halls. Since there was no possibility of me ever seeing a ghost-haunted ancestral hall because he lived in the jungles of India... (laughs) Dante's ghost stories held no terrors for me. He had just finished telling his most blood-curling story, and the nervous girl had again admonished her companion not to look behind, when the old horned fish owl, who spent all his days dozing on the dead branch of the tree, roofed over with creepers, where he was safe from the attention of crows and other birds. The call came from the topmost branch of the Huldu tree, that had blasted by lightning and that was a landmark to those of us who armed with catapult or butterfly net ventured into the dense jungle in which it stood dancy to the end of his ghost stories and switch over to the stories about banshees which to him were even more real and more to be feared than ghosts according to dancy a banshee was an evil female spirit who resided in dense forest and was so malignant that the mere hearing of its wail brought calamity to the hearer and his family, and the seeing of it death to the unfortunate beholder. Dancy described the call of the banshee as a long, drawn-out scream which was heard most frequently on dark and stormy nights. These banshee stories had a fearful fascination for me, for they had a setting in the jungles in which I loved to roam and search for birds and eggs and butterflies. I do not know what form the banshees took that Dancy heard in Ireland, but I know the guise of the two of them that he heard in the jungles of Caldehungi. About one of these banshees I shall tell you now. It is known as the Chirul. To all the people who live in the foothills of the Himalayas and many other parts of India, the Chirul, most feared of all evil spirits, appears in the form of a woman. Having cast her eyes on a human being, this woman whose feet are turned the wrong way, mesmerizes her victims as a snake does a bird, and walking backward wars them to their doom. When there is danger of seeing the woman, the only defense against her, Wiles is to shield the eyes with hands, any piece of cloth that is handy, 
or if indoors, pulled a blanket over your head. So there is the story continues for pages, but the story goes on that uh, the the people of India and a lot of the English and Irishmen believed the true rule because they had heard it. This horrifying, terrifying sound in the night. And it would call consecutively over and over again. And nobody could ever figure out where it was from and then it disappeared. Not to be heard again for months or days or years. Oh. So as an adult, Jim Corbett was in his house with his wife when for the first time in his life he heard the sound. And so it was it was a cold winter's day, which in India I don't know how cold the winter is, but to the this older British man it was quite cold. But he went out <laughs> on his balcony with his artillery uh binoculars uh and stood out there looking for this bird or that what he thought would be a bird. So oh oh he but he could not he couldn't compare it to any bird he'd ever heard in all of India. Hmm. He's, so he's standing out there looking through the darkness for it and he finally spots something in the distance and it, it, it what he sees is a giant bird tipping its head back to make this horrifying sound but from a distance with the way its feathers and its and its wings sit it looks like a woman in a dark dirty dress oh. with her legs bent backwards ooh yeah that is creepy when he finally comes across it face to face when he, he was actually out hunting for uh, a tiger, uh, he heard the call from right behind him ah. in the dead of night alone. And he turned around into this full moon setting and this giant bird that, that you know, from a distance looks like a woman in a dress with her legs backwards. <laughs> because you know how a bird's legs bend. And, yeah. You know, those, those spindly-legged birds. And he actually walked up to it. Oh, jeez. And once he got close enough, he still couldn't tell what the what the bird was, where it was from, and no, he had no record of ever its existence. Jeez. But it was there. It, but he, he, he felt like he confirmed it, but he couldn't bring himself to shoot the bird and bring it back to show people because he's like, well, if people think it's a harbinger of death, what's going to happen to me if I shoot it? <laughs> right, why risk this? Right. <laughs> But if you if you like animal attacks and ghost stories, uh, Jim Corbett's your man. <laughs> Jeez. Well, my ladies aren't creepy birds. No. I just think they're probably, I think a lot of female spirits we think that we're seeing or finding are very well could just be a banshee. Well, uh, there, there, there was a tradition, kind of uh, unspoken tradition at the time in India uh, in the little villages that he lived and worked in, where uh, if you heard something, like you heard the the chiru or tiger even, you didn't say its name the next day. Because if you said its name again, you were calling it back to you to oh, find geez. you. So the night that he went out on his balcony to look for it, he couldn't go ask anybody in town if they had seen it. Because if he said its name, they were going to run away shrieking oh, from him. Because you weren't supposed to call those things into your life. Not well. That's true. I yeah. always say, don't bring it into your house. Mm -hmm. Always. Why risk it? Yeah. I say that about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> People think I'm crazy, but I'm not bringing voodoo dolls and tarot cards into my nope. house. Nope. I'm good. Why take the risk? I don't need to be a cool kid. Yeah. 
Don't that's, need that mojo. That, that's like setting up those white noise things they do in ghost shows, you know, ghost adventures and stuff. They're like, ooh, I want to hear if there's something, something wants to say something terrifying to me. It's like, no, I'd rather not know. No, if I don't If I can't really hear them know. say it, why would I want to make a way for them to actually right? be able that's to? That's fine. Yeah, or no, even I'm worse, good. when you set up those machines and you just kind of manifest what they actually yeah, said. Yeah, right. And we're sitting here at home watching, we're like, no, nothing no, happened. Nothing, nothing but said But you anything. are so in this haunted building in your mind, like, oh, shit, yeah, look what's so after me. Up in it. Yeah. I have no interest in doing that well, on purpose. You know, I learned about that, too, uh, not only in the army, but also in, uh, well, taking hunter safety and stuff like that. If you're looking out expecting something to happen, if you're waiting for that deer or you're waiting for that enemy and you're locked on that one position eventually you're going to make it up in your own mind that it's there. I believe it. That's absolutely true. Yeah. You take into account in Vietnam that uh, for like every 5,000 rounds expended, one enemy was killed. It's very easy to convince yourself that something's out there watching you, looking when at you. When it's not. When, it, when it's not. He of the moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's all we have for you for this episode, folks. That's it. Find us on Patreon at Strange Shenanigans. Find us on Podbean and listen to everything at The Strange Show. Follow us on Twitter, also at The Strange Show, because all the names were taken. (laughs) Find some weird stuff we put on there. And also where to find all our episodes. Yes. We're also on Instagram at Strange Shenanigans Podcast. And we're doing way better about posting things, so you should follow us. (laughs) I'm Stan. I'm Ashley. Stay weird. <laughs>